Now let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. We are studying the life of Abraham found in the book of Genesis, actually a major part of the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 14. It's our purpose to look at all 24 verses this morning. The topic is this. Despite the fact Lot brings it upon himself by making terrible personal choices, Abraham risks his own life to rescue his brother's son. The title of our message, He Ain't Heavenly, He's My Brother's. Let's have a word of prayer. We love you, Lord, and thank you for the opportunity to spend time together as a family of believers, fellowshipping one with another. Uh, we thank you for those that are apart from us today, like Stephanie in Kuwait or Jean and Kelly up in Sanger, Lord, teaching at Refuge Calvary there, or others that may be watching, may not be watching. Uh, but Lord, wherever we are, you've knit us together as a family of believers that love one another and care for each other. And this morning, those of us that are here, we want to study together and be taught together the Word by your Holy Spirit who is here in our midst. We thank you and praise you. And we do so in Jesus' name and all those who agreed said, Amen. You know how to call 911 in an emergency, but what would you do if no one answered? Well, residents of New Hanover in North Carolina encountered that situation back in 2009. Around 6.30 p.m. on a Saturday night, neighbors noticed a fire. They immediately called 911. I had my cell phone on this year and my house phone on the other year, Kathy Boone said, and they were just ringing and ringing. Fellow neighbor John Cumba said, my wife tried three times to get 911 and the phone rang. Nobody was there. That's actually not true. It's just that no one answered. About five neighbors called to report the house fire. They say they couldn't believe no one answered their calls. Someone dialed the sheriff's department directly and help was dispatched. Neighbors say a firefighter told them 911 was just too flooded with calls when neighbors tried to report the fire. It's being called 911 overload. There are lots of reasons for it. One study, for example, reported that as many as 45% of 911 calls made in California are for non-emergencies, and they're just clogging the lines. Uh, to give you some perspective on 911 calls, in 2010, 260 million calls were made to 911 operators in the United States. Dispatchers do an incredible job. They can't do it when the lines are clogged. Now, a call for help is made in our text in Genesis 14. Information gets to Abraham that his nephew, Lot, has been taken captive during a battle. Abraham was Lot's 911. He answered the call and he rescued Lot. The Bible describes situations in which people, both non-believers and believers, are taken captive, spiritually speaking. In 2 Timothy, we read, it's the 2 Timothy 2.26, uh, correct those who are in opposition that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Perhaps the clearest spiritual 911 call would be Galatians 6.1, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Uh, as we see our story this morning in Genesis 14, it's very much like Galatians 6.1. Lot was indeed overtaken. Abraham, who was spiritual, rushes to restore him. But then Abraham has to be careful 
because a temptation presented itself to him. We'll see that Abraham was ready to answer the call and he remained steady in the face of temptation. Obviously, so must we. I'll organize my thoughts around two questions. Number one, are you ready to answer the call and rescue those taken captive? And number two, are you steady to avoid the fall and refuse to be taken captive? Let's take a look, first of all, at being ready. And we're going to note two things about Abraham in this text. Of all the things we could talk about, these two are going to be our focus. Number one, he was mission ready at all times. And number two, he was mission willing regardless the outcome. Let's take a quick look at his mission readiness. Follow with me as I try and get through these first ten verses with a bunch of strange names. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Sher de Lorammer, now, let me try that again. Shedor Laomer, there you go, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, mention my name in Sheboygan too, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Shedor Laomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Cherdoleomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shiva Kiriathim, and the Horites in their mountain of Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishfat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazan Timar. The king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that's Zoar, went out and joined together in the valley, uh, in battle in the valley of Siddim against Sherder Loramer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariah, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains." Now, the king of Sodom and the kings of the adjoining cities, after having been tributaries for a dozen years to the king of Elam, they combined to throw off his oppression. To punish their rebellion, Sherdoleomer, with the aid of three allies, invaded their territories, defeated them in battle, uh, where the nature of ground favored his army, and he hastened in triumph on his homeward march with a large amount of captives and spoil. That's the historic background. Verse uh, Verse 11. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and they departed. Now, the last time we saw Lot, he was parting ways with Abraham. And the Bible said that he had pitched his tent as far as Sodom. Now we read that he dwelt in Sodom. So he'd given up tent living outside the gates of Sodom to live Uh, inside as a citizen. Lot's first poor choice to choose the land that was toward Sodom led to other poor choices. It made it easier for him to justify what was essentially backsliding. It's a good, bad example of being overtaken and it led to him being taken captive. And so uh, minor decisions are not always minor if they're in the wrong direction Uh, Once you start off course, you're going to get lost. And so uh, Lot 
you know, we talked about this last time we were together. Uh, he may have been commended by somebody in the world for choosing the better grazing land, but he was already looking past it to uh, Sodom where he really wanted to live. And so when he parted with Abraham, he was thinking about partying in uh, Sodom. And over a period of time, he ended up there and it was a disaster. Verse 13, then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now, the one who had escaped, we suppose, was a godless citizen of one of these cities, probably Sodom. He sought out Abraham. It's wonderful when the ungodly, in their time of crisis, seek out the believer. They seek you out knowing that you can be of real help to them. Hang in there. You don't know the effect that you're having on people. It may seem like nothing's going on. They may even be persecuting you. But sooner or later, there's going to be a time in your life when uh, one or more people are going to come to that crisis that is spiritual in nature, and they're going to know that you are a source of strength and encouragement of the love of Jesus Christ for them. Now, this is the first occurrence of the word Hebrew in the Bible. It's a description, really. The word itself means something like to cross over or having crossed over. It could be translated to Passover or having passed over. Abraham was called the first Hebrew probably because he crossed over the Euphrates River in pursuit of the one true God and the promises that he had made. And so it's like a, a title for Abraham or a nickname for him is how it started, it, it seems. When people you say, hey, who's that guy over there? They say, oh, that's Abraham who crossed over from Ur of the Chaldees to follow his God, who he says is the one true God who has made him these tremendous promises. And so that, we believe, is the derivation of the word Hebrew here. We also see that Abraham had relationships with non-believers like Amorites, but he certainly wasn't being affected by them in a negative way. He is in the world, not of the world. Lot is in the world and of the world. They stand in stark contrast to each other. And so Abraham receives the news that Lot was taken captive, and we find that he was immediately mission ready. Verse 14, now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as the Hobah, which is north of Damascus. 318 servants. Man, that's a lot of servants, but not a very large army to face off against four kings with their armies. God loves to send out his servants against overwhelming odds because it gives him the perfect opportunity to display his extraordinary power. And, and that, God's about that business. And so the next time you think you're outmanned, God has probably set it up that way so that he can reveal himself through you to others. We used to sing a song whose chorus was, we are few, but we are strong when you surround us. Numbers are great, but they are never necessary in a spiritual battle. We, we, I think, fall into error when we think we have to get everybody together on the same page, all one united people uh, doing one thing. Uh, it, it just doesn't happen that often, especially in the Old Testament. Quite the opposite. 
God decides, he says to Gideon, he goes, you know, you've got too many guys. I need to pare this down. Uh, and he gets down to a number that is uh, extraordinary so that anybody looking at that would say, there's no way that those people are going to win this victory. You might be better off with a smaller force uh, because that's God's philosophy throughout. Now, Abraham had also trained his servants to fight. He's some kind of a ninja, I guess. Uh, and do you ever think of Abraham that way? You think of him as an old man, you know, shepherd. I mean, he's out there in the morning doing his Tai Chi. I mean, he was ready to go. They were servant soldiers. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know when I point out that you too are a servant soldier in God's household of faith, the church. Abraham had equipped his servant soldiers with weapons. I'm not sure what type of weaponry they had, whether it was state of the art or not. I will say that in keeping with the idea that God wants to reveal his strength in weakness, often the weapons of our warfare seem inadequate. Or, or when we look at what we have to fight with, uh, we, we kind of get afraid. We think, well, I mean, here in church, we think, oh, yeah, the word of God, prayer, fellowship. Then you get out to work tomorrow and it's like, I'm overwhelmed. There's some real enemies here with some real potent weaponry. And I'm not sure that my weapons are adequate. It's kind of like Will Smith as Agent J in Men in Black. Remember that when he becomes the man in black and then they open up that panel. Those of you who are have the liberty to watch movies. Um, I've been told this is true. Anyway, you, uh, they open up that pen. There's all this fantastic, you know, alien weapon technology. And then Tommy Lee Jones hands him the noisy cricket, which is a little toy gun about that big. But man, that gun packed a big wallop if you knew how to shoot it. And that's the idea. Sometimes I think I'm facing a Goliath with my noisy cricket. You know, I mean, this is the gun that you're going to give me, God. God, you want me to pray about this? Really? I mean, I've, re- I've read E.M. Bounds. I know that prayer changes things and power through prayer. And, but, you know, I mean, really? Could I have some money with it, too? So I could buy my way out? How about money and prayer? You know, how about something material along with the spiritual? And then I can hang with that. But, uh, you know, our weaponry is sufficient. It's mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. Training and weapons are great. You still need a plan. And we find that Abraham had a strategy and it worked. He divided his men in half and they attacked at night so that the enemy couldn't know how many forces were against it and they fled. Uh, Verse 16, so he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. Now Abraham was mission ready and he uh, was mission accomplished. But I also mentioned at the outset that he was mission willing regardless the outcome, and now we're going to see what that means, and it may be the most important point of this this morning. We're told that Abraham brought back Lot and his goods. Brought back to where? Well, as this story unfolds, he brought them back, and they went back to Sodom. And the next time we see Lot, he's not just living in Sodom, He's one of the leaders in Sodom. He's either the mayor or one of the city councilmen. And he has to be dragged out by angels when the city is about to be toasted from heaven. And so here's the thing. I believe most Christians are somewhat mission ready. We've been taught the word of God. We spend time in prayer. Never enough, but we do. And we have some idea about our equipping in terms of the gifts of God, the Holy Spirit. We might not always be mission willing, however, if we have opinions about the people needing rescuing or if we judge our mission by the expected outcome. 
Let's be blunt about this. Why should Abraham risk his life for Lot when Lot chose of his own free will to live in Sodom knowing the possible consequences? Why should Abraham go to battle for Lot only to see him move back to Sodom and become a worse backslider than he was previously? Well, as we ponder those questions it occurred to me that it would be like asking why should Jesus leave heaven, take the body of a man, die on the cross for the sins of the whole world, knowing that most people are going to reject him and his offer of salvation. And so right away I'm excited and happy that Jesus doesn't think this way. That when the uh, Father and the Son and the Spirit were looking at the plan of salvation and it began to unfold in eternity past that Jesus didn't say, Why should I die for the people that are not going to accept me? And even the Christians, even those that do receive me, look how their lives are going to continue to be messed up over periods of time. But the Lord, He didn't think that way at all. He saw everyone with compassion. He looked upon them as needing to be saved and that was enough for Him. Uh, and, And so He came. And so we need to, if we have this kind of an attitude, we need to check it. Now the non-believers around us are taken captive by the devil to do his will. That doesn't mean they're demon-possessed, only that they are acting in accordance with their nature. They're not saved. They don't have the Holy Spirit of God living in them. Uh, It's amazing that they don't treat us worse. It's amazing that they're kind to us at all. Uh, They're just acting like sinners act. They need rescuing despite their undeserving condition. In fact, the more undeserving they are, the greater is the display of God's grace. Uh, And so, you know, we go back out into our strategic placement and some of you, man, you're being hammered by your boss or your fellow employees or uh, people in your neighborhood, whatever it might be. I mean, it's rough. And we really should have the attitude that, well, the worse it is, the greater the grace on display. The more God will pour out His Spirit through me. Believers overtaken by sin need rescuing too. Even when they bring it upon themselves, even when they return again and again to making bad choices. I have to be honest with you and I hate to say this, but there are times I look at people and I say, of course nobody here, but I look at people and I think, you've made your bed, now lie in it. I've come there 15 times and I'm not coming a 16th time. You know, that kind of a thing. Now, I'm going to do tough love. Oh, I, I think I understand tough love in its context, but I'm glad that Jesus didn't do tough love with me. What if, what if the 25th time I rejected Christ, he said, that's it, I am done. Luckily, Jesus went on to tell Peter, he goes, Peter, hey, buddy, somebody sins against you personally. You need to forgive them 70 times 7 every day. Oh, Lord, Why? Is that in the original manuscript? Come on, you know, that can't be. Do the math. You don't even have time for that. And, but the idea was that that's the heart. And we find that struggle within, don't we? we, we you know, we, there, there's that part of us that thinks, you know, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. Uh, or vice versa. See, I can't. I, that's why I have to have everything written down. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And you think, I'm not going to be taken advantage of anymore. I've already tried to help you once before, twice before, ten times before. You are undeserving now of my help. I've shut you out. Ooh. Wow. Abraham didn't think that way. 
he delivered Lot. Lot said, thanks, buddy, uncle. I'm going back to Sodom where now I have a chance to be the mayor. Maybe the mayor got killed in the struggle, and so now he's going to fill that vacancy. And it's pretty weird. But that's our mission. We need to be ready and willing despite the results. The results are not up to us. Only the mission. We're going to be evaluated on our faithfulness to the mission, not on our seeming success or failure. So today when we ask, are you ready, we also mean, are you willing? I was thinking about this this morning. Uh, If there are prejudices and opinions that are keeping us from reaching out, we need to leave them at the cross and see people the way Jesus did with this eternal compassion. I realized that without you know, making a, uh, a judgment on my upbringing, you know, in, in the family that I, I was in. I mean, I, a lot of people from my generation will uh, understand this. Uh, I, I grew up in an extremely prejudiced, bigoted environment. Uh, I, I didn't think all in the family was funny. I thought it was normal. If you've ever watched that, you think, Archie Bunker, yeah, that's, that's life. You talk about people in, in their ethnic groups and you have a, a couple of names for them, one good, one not so good. And you stereotype people and you pigeonhole people and, and you just you judge people. And you know, you get saved and if you're like me, you still have the flesh to contend with and that kind of hangs out a little bit. And if you're not careful, it spills over into this idea of being mission ready and you start to look at groups of people and you think, well, that group of people doesn't deserve the gospel. Our care, our love, it's, it's, very, um, it's very sinister and we need to just try to allow the Lord to soften our hearts and, and, and hold our hearts as it were in His hand and say, Gene, I, I died for you. You're a loser. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, you know, you're, you know what, if, what if the Lord believed all the Italian stereotypes? What if He thought, you know, I was some kind of a Dago Wop loser, you know, and stuff? He didn't. He saw me as an eternal soul and he saved me. And he wants me to see others that way. Second, are you, are you steady enough to avoid the fall? Abraham was in his greatest danger after the battle. Flushed with victory, a serious temptation was presented to him. Verse 17, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, the king's valley after his return from the defeat of Sher de Leomer. And the kings who were with him dropped to verse 21. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Abraham certainly deserved a reward for his efforts, or did he? Whenever we start down the road of what we might deserve, we're headed for a fall. It's not that we deserve nothing because we're so unworthy. It's that we must let God determine what He wants to give us and that we must prefer things that are spiritual over things that are Material. And so Abraham's going to end up with really nothing of the spoil, but something greater than that uh, that he experiences. Uh, he says uh, in verse 22, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Now the problem here was that if Abraham received the goods, the perception would be that the king of Sodom had made him rich. It would cast doubts upon Abraham's motives for rescuing Lot and the others with him. Was he in it for the money? Was he in it for the glory? 
It's so hard to not judge and to be judged by the standards of the world. We tend to measure success, even spiritual success, by our outward observation. We need to really look deeper, try to see what God is doing in the spiritual realm. Now, Abraham had trained himself and his servant soldiers for battle. Most importantly, God had prepared him for victory by giving him mission parameters, and we see those as we go back to verses 18 through 20. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Melchizedek, it turns out, is a title more than a name. It means king of righteousness. And so we glean from that that Melchizedek was a believer, a contemporary of Abraham's, who was declared righteous by God the same way Abraham was by believing God and that God had established a priesthood uh, there with Melchizedek. It says he lived in Salem, which is the precursor of Jerusalem. He's an interesting Bible character. It's best to study him in depth in the context of the book of Hebrews. I would point you to our studies there. Chapter 7 of Hebrews draws out the importance of Melchizedek. Uh, Here's the deal in a nutshell. Jesus is presented to the nation of Israel as their great high priest. We talk about Jesus as our great high priest. But according to the law of Moses, you had to be descended from Aaron. You had to be a Levite in order to be a priest. And so a Jew would raise their hand and say, excuse me, Jesus Christ, he came from the line of Judah, so he can't be a priest. And the argument is, oh, wait a minute. There was a priesthood before the Aaronic priesthood, before the law of Moses. There was a priesthood established with this guy, Melchizedek. And so, yeah, Jesus can be a priest. Uh, and, and it's a scriptural argument that you use with Jews to prove that Jesus Christ uh, qualifies as a priest as well as a king. Now, here we see that Abraham was returning with great wealth. He was met by both the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. It was intended as a contrast. The wealth he had been blessed with could be an occasion of stumbling to him or it could be an opportunity of sacrifice and spirituality. He chose to remain steady, spiritual, and make sacrifice. He gave to the priest and therefore to God a tithe of all. Tithe means tenth or ten percent, and that's on your gross before taxes. People ask me that. Believe it or not, people ask me that over there. Say, if I'm going to tithe, is it on my gross or on my net? It's on your gross. Uh, It's often argued that since Abraham gave God 10% before the law of Moses, that it's a universal principle that God, uh, God's people must give 10% at least. Well, that's not true. The New Testament gives us principles to evaluate our giving. Uh, What it comes down to is very simply this. You're to give regularly, joyfully, and sacrificially of money to the work of the Lord, especially through the local church. That's it in a nutshell. If you want to set a percentage on how much to give, you should start with 100% and work backwards. Because we belong to the Lord. We're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. That includes, but is not limited to, our money. God said that we owe Caesar, or the government, some money, even though we don't like it. 
And obviously, we need to live, so we need money there. But our giving to God should not be a matter of getting a small percentage out of the way so that we can do whatever we want with the rest. It should be a matter of knowing that the time is short, that we want to further the kingdom of God. How much can we give and still survive so that God's work will prosper? Now, Melchizedek brought Abraham bread and wine, which we immediately recognize as the future elements of the Lord's Supper. There's certainly a lot of deep mystery we can plumb here, but it's also pretty obvious what was going on. God was preparing Abraham ahead of time for the temptation victory would bring him by having communion and fellowship with him through his priest. It is in that fellowship that God instructed Abraham how to answer the temptation. When the king of Sodom offered him the goods, Abraham referred to God as God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. He had just gotten that title in this encounter with Melchizedek. And so in other words, because he had communion with God in that fellowship, God revealed something spiritual about himself to Abraham, which prepared him for the temptation. And so when the temptation came, he thought, oh, now I know what this is all about. I serve God Most High. I don't serve the king of Sodom. I'm not going to be subordinate to him by taking his gift. And I don't need that stuff anyway because God is the possessor of heaven and earth. And so he had been prepared. I think a lot of what we do is preparation because God, you realize God knows what's going to happen in a few minutes, don't you? And tomorrow and the next day and all of that. I mean, because he's God. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He knows all of these things. And so God is constantly looking to prepare us. And one of the things he prepares us for is temptation so that we can remain steady. A lot of times, maybe you'll read something, hear something, it will seem to be meaningful to you in a different way, and then you'll just tuck it away, and then later on you'll be able to use that in some situation. That's what happened with Abraham. And so, instead of thinking that uh, this idea that God is the possessor in heaven and earth meant that he deserved the world's goods. Abraham understood he needed nothing from the world except what God chose to provide him. And so God is saying, look, the whole world is mine. I've given you some promises. You don't need anything else other than what I'm going to provide. And Abraham, it, you know, he thought, okay, well, then I don't need what the king of Sodom is going to offer. And so God had given him his mission parameters so that in the end he didn't snatch uh, you know, victory from the jaws of defeat, as it were. Now, in knowing the nature and character of God, we steady ourselves to handle temptation. And we come to know Him in that personal fellowship with His priest, who in our case, obviously, is Jesus. He's at the right hand of the throne, interceding for us. We have communion with Him because of His body and blood. And so what a beautiful picture of spiritual warfare. You are mission-ready. And God has placed you strategically in the world to answer calls to rescue and restore. That's what we get from this. If you've been a Christian for 10 minutes or for a decade or longer, you're mission ready at whatever level you need to be. And God has placed you strategically in the world right where you're at so that you can answer calls to restore and rescue. Make sure you have the compassion of Jesus to be mission willing no matter who's involved, and then let the Lord steady you against potential temptation. Simple but powerful. Let's pray.